from the Gettysburgian and 91.1 WZBT Gettysburg. I'm Ben Ponce and this is On Target. I'm Gary Mangala and today on Target we will be discussing the end of the spring 2020 semester that has now transitioned to remote learning. Then I'll sit down with Trace Mullins, the new Vice President of Development, Alumni and Parent Relations. Stay with us. All right, let's get into it. We are recording this on May the 1st. It is a Friday. It is the last day of classes. If uh, regardless of whether we were doing this online learning thing or not, I suppose it would be my last day of classes at Gettysburg College ever. Uh, yeah, here we are. Gari? Ah, uh, it's... It's definitely weird because it doesn't feel momentous, I guess, you know, because it's usually like the last day of school, like it's a whole thing. Right. Um, definitely feels like just any other day. Um, but I'm sure it has some weight for you and all the other seniors on campus. You know, some probably finished up yesterday as well because some students don't have Friday classes. Um, yeah. How are you feeling about that? Well, I mean, our, our, our podcast listeners uh, aren't really able to see this, but I've moved into the uh, tropical island beach Zoom background phase of it all, uh, which, which should probably tell you I'm not well. Uh, but <laughs> no, but it's been all right. I mean, I have had something of a leveling, uh, kind of a slow descent. Uh, in terms of classes ending up this week, I only had one today. I had a couple on Wednesday. Um, I don't know if classes on Thursday. So, you know, I've kind of, I guess, eased into the end. Um, I guess I shouldn't really say it's the end yet because I still have my 50-page capstone to uh, edit and revise and a paper about political parties to write that I maybe perhaps haven't started. Um, so, you know, there's still some things to do, but yeah, you know, I think that fundamentally the classroom experience at Gettysburg College has been, well, the cornerstone of, of my time here, as I imagine it is for most students, at least those of us who go to class, uh, which, you know, is most of us. Um, and, and, you know, I, I, we're going to talk about this a little bit more, but I presented earlier today to the Board of Trustees um, who were meeting to hear from another student and myself, as well as two faculty members, about, about how remote learning has gone. And what I told them um, is that I think, fun, for the most part, we can replicate a good portion, if not most of the in-class classroom experience via Zoom or whatever. As in, you know, discussions can continue to happen, learning can continue to happen in the class setting. I am less convinced that we can replicate co-curricular activities, that we can replicate social connections that we can replicate 
an environment in which it is a reasonable expectation for students to read three or 400 pages a week across, across several classes. Uh, being at home without, I don't know, Gari, does your house have its own library? Mine doesn't. Um, and I think that those are all things that certainly one cannot blame Gettysburg College for not having figured out everything that was figured out on two weeks notice, you know, I give the college a lot of credit, but if I were asked today, whether, you know, if, if an incoming student or my younger sister, who's a senior in high school asked me, would you go to Gettysburg college this fall in an online setting knowing what it costs based on what you now know you can reasonably expect to receive, I would have a hard time, I think, saying yes. I think that answer is different for me. I would say yes, in my own case, being in semester eight of eight, having built up the relationships on which I can, you know, draw in this remote setting, yeah, probably is. I mean, I've I've continued to be in close contact with professors and many of my friends and things, but um, you know, if you don't have all of that capital built up, I would think it would be very difficult to build in this setting. And I don't know that I would advise someone to to pay what it costs to go here to only get a facsimile of the classroom experience. I don't know, Gary, what about you? Yeah, I agree. I mean, for me, you know, I was in between a couple of schools uh, when I chose Gettysburg, two of which were going to be much cheaper um, and both of which were going to be less than Gettysburg because you know I love what the campus stood for I love what the college stood for I love the opportunities that were going to be available and and that's rung true but the thing about a place like Gettysburg it's a residential college um the thing about that kind of environment is that a big portion of why it works is because your main identity when you go there is being a college student you know like that is the environment that you're in and I, I was speaking with my advisor um, a couple days back and he was asking me how I was doing. And I said that a really hard part about remote learning, um, especially when you're not used to it and it's in college, I think it's harder when you're in college than when you're in high school, because when you're in high school, for the most part, you are living at home. Um at least for me, is that now my main identity has stopped being a student. It's been being a daughter. Um, you know, I'm at home and there's a lot of, you know, when you're, when you're at college, you're allowed to be, I guess, selfish and, um, you know, you're, you're prioritizing yourself. It's four years prioritizing yourself and building yourself up. But when you're home, you know, there are people that are relying on you to, uh, you know, live in this environment with them. So for example, I might be studying uh, in our home office here, but um, 
or I might be filming a podcast or having a meeting or something, but if my mom needs to come in, she needs to come in. Um, you know, and that kind of thing has definitely been a struggle. It's definitely been, um, something to get used to is just this idea that, um, you come home and you're still somebody's kid. Um, and you're not just a college student and that's great for some reasons. It definitely puts things into perspective, but I think for another thing, it's really, it's not what I wanted. There's a level of independence that goes away. Also with this, just this, uh, this learning environment, it's a lot of, um, independent work. So even if you, you know, I have close relationships with my professors, I speak to most of my professors multiple times a week. Um, but a lot of it comes down to just pushing yourself to get that work done. And if you're not in the environment that you're used to being in of getting that work done, we spoke about this many times before, it's hard to get yourself into that headspace because you're not in your, the physical space that you're used to being. That is, for me, being in my childhood home is defined by like being on break from school and like not, I spent my last two summers working at the college. So for me, being at home means that there's nothing going on. Um, but I'm in school, I finals are coming up and um, I still haven't really gotten out of that headspace. Maybe, uh, you know, to your point about, uh, you know, a high school senior that's maybe considering going to college either at Gettysburg or somewhere else that may end up being a remote first semester, maybe that'll be different because you're going to be coming right out of high school. You're used to living at home and doing all your work at home. You're, you know, you're not really in an environment where you're used to like all the extracurriculars that come with college. Um, personally for me, um, I think that if I was being asked that question, uh, I don't think I would personally go to Gettysburg my first semester if it was remote or anywhere else, really. I think that would be when I would take a year off um, because your first year, your first semester is so influential on who you are in college and what you become. You make so many connections with people. And I wouldn't want that to be wasted sitting at a screen. Um, well, I mean, I think that a couple of things are true. We're, to some extent here, speculating at what yeah. an orientation might look like. What I mean, there are colleges considering scenarios in which only first years come to campus in the fall. Um, I, I, I truly have no idea whether Gettysburg is considering that. I there's an article floating around Inside Higher Ed, which is a kind of a trade journal, so to say, in which the title was something like 15 Ways College Might Look This Fall, and that was one of them. Um, you know, I think that colleges are aware. I know that Gettysburg is aware of these uh, of these questions um, about, you know, how you acclimate to acculturate to a new community. Um, and it remains to be seen what that might look like. And every college is going to tackle that differently. I guess maybe I should soften what I said earlier a little bit. I would at least want to see a plan for how Gettysburg's education will look different than my local 
community college from mm-hmm. which I could take online classes or a state university from which I could take online classes. You know, we ran a piece um, a couple of weeks ago now uh, written by Ashley Blackwell, who speculated that uh, Gettysburg right now is no different than Millersville University, which is a state university in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, where I'm from. Perfectly perfectly fine state university, but, you know, not the caliber of an education holistically that one expects and pays for at Gettysburg. Uh, and and she contended that she would be just, you know, be- probably better off there because it would cost a quarter or, a th- or, you know, a third of what it costs to go to Gettysburg. And I my visceral reaction is no, that that the liberal arts experience still has value even remotely. And as I said, I think we have seen that in the classroom. I don't think we have seen that outside of the classroom. And, you know, I, I can, I know that college life has made some efforts to try to help students connect co-curricularly. The Garthwaite Leadership Center has been involved with, with some of those efforts, but it's difficult to say that those have been very successful, at least as far as I can tell, and based on the various kind of pockets of campus in which I'm of which I'm a member. Uh, you know, the flip side to that is. I think students are generally staying in touch with their friends, um, you know, by group chat and text and Zoom and I don't know. I've had some old-fashioned phone calls with some people. Uh, so maybe in that context, it's it's been okay, and that students just really didn't see a whole lot of utility in in uh, continuing to meet as the the, I don't know, I don't want to pick a club, the basket weaving club, which doesn't exist, but I didn't want to take a shot at any real clubs, at the basket weaving club during all of this. And I think what matters is that this happened in the fourth of four quarters of an academic year. The next possible time it would happen would be in the first one, when there are none of those friendships to fall back on, at least for first year students, uh, such that, you know, it'll be interesting to see what approach is taken, but I, I think that if there's a lesson, you know, had I asked myself the question that that I turned Emily Dalgleish, our opinions editor, loose to find answers on, what have we learned from online learning? I've learned that you know we can learn online. It it's not it's not the same. It's not useless. Uh, it's hard to read in particular, in my experience at least, but I think that on the whole, we can replicate the classroom experience in the actual class meeting time in the social sciences where there are no labs uh, or maybe the humanities as well. Maybe not so much the arts and certainly not the hard sciences, the natural sciences. Um, So we can replicate parts of the classroom experience and we can you know continue friendships that were already existing and relationships that were already existing it's difficult 
for me to say we can do much more. And in the absence of that, that's where I think reasonable questions come into play about whether folks are getting what they're paying for. There's a great one, one last note on this point. In this article that I referred to, what we learned from online learning, there's a great quote um, from a professor in the philosophy department, Mercedes Valmiso Oviedo, um, who I think she's quoting her friend here, but she said, um, as a friend of mine said, the pedagogical experience is not cinematic, but theatrical. It cannot dispense with the presence of bodies. And I think that that uh, encapsulates many of the differences uh, that, that we're experiencing at, as a whole here. It's, it's definitely, I, I think that the thing that I've taken away from it all is that regardless of whether or not you know, we say that the liberal arts is in full effect in all of our classroom settings. I think we're still analyzing it from that angle. Um, I've been in many discussions with my friends about their courses and like what they've been seeing, what they've liked, what they haven't liked, um, what they found has been effective. And I think that the critical, I and obviously being critical of things isn't inherent to just liberal arts students, but I think the fact that we're being critical of our education is the mark of a system that's working because as long as people are, you know, willing to communicate that and willing to not just coast on what we've been given. Um, I have faith that if, you know, we have to do this in the fall semester, that it will, we'll find a way to make it work. Um, and more than that, I think that now that we have this summer, um, you know, for people to be making those decisions and to be analyzing their syllabi, I think will more than make it work. I think right now we've been in some ways making it work and some courses up more than others. Um, I think we'll be able to find a way to warrant the ticket price of Gettysburg online. You know, I think that that's something that maybe we haven't done as much just because some people have been questioning it. But I think that if people do take the time to really, you know, look at what they want to teach and how they can best suit that to online, whether that be in the hard sciences, finding uh, more options for, you know, software that can look into the lab components. You know, for me, for example, I took a class a semester on osteology. We weren't really able to look at and touch bones. We were instead analyzing pictures, but maybe there are some online programs where I can look at 3D modeling of bones and really be able to analyze that way, that kind of thing. I think, uh, I think that everybody in this situation, professors and students alike, and even the administration wants to make the best out of this. And as long as we want to make the best out of it, I think we'll find something that works for people. I think that's, uh, you know, I hope that's true. Um, I do think you're right that pedagogically things can be redesigned you know i'm not a fan of group projects nor am i general however this might be a time where that type of kind of forced interaction to some extent might be warranted uh you know from a pedagogical standpoint i wanted to return to um 
you know, uh, more than, well, six weeks ago, I wrote a column in the Gettysburgian that was uh, titled, what was it titled? I've moved out for the last time. It sucks, but we're not done yet. One of my mm. more poetic titles, I think. Mm. <laughs> um, and I wanted to return to uh, this passage from it, which is that, quote, our goal in the coming weeks, I think, ought to be to tap into Gettysburg College's stock of social capital, to remind one another what binds us as a campus community at a time when the biggest threat is not enmity, but apathy, a slow, sad drift into loneliness and isolation that is so much more easily avoided when we're all together on campus, end quote. Um, certainly, that was aspirational, but I wonder, Gary, the extent to which you think we've achieved that aspiration. I have my own thoughts, but I want to uh, not color your perspective first, as if yeah. you would ever agree with anything I said, <laughs> you know, and be concerned that, uh, but I don't want you to reflexively take the opposite position. Exactly. <laughs> um, I think that, hmm. I think that it's interesting to look at that, you know, six weeks later and see what, you know, you were hoping for. And I did agree with a lot of the points that you had made when you'd written that um, to now. Um, I think that there's a level of survival that went into play, which sounds ridiculous. But like, uh, I think that a lot of people have, you know, and uh, I'm one of those people have, you know, we, we have this pass fail option. Um, this is the second half of the spring semester time that people do tend to sink or float anyway. Um, you know, you, you coast, you do what you have to do to get by. Um, I have a bulletin board in front of my desk right here with a bunch of post-it notes of assignments that I have yet to even consider because I can't get myself to, you know, and, and it's like looking at, okay, well, what, what do I need to do to get the grades I want in the classes that I don't want to do pass fail? And I think that's the case for a lot of students. I think, I don't think it's apathy. I don't think people are apathetic to the situation or to the learning environment, but I think I think that people have, for better or for worse, probably for worse, realize that this semester is just, you know, it's harder for the seniors, but the semester is kind of just, it is what it is. It's not, it's not just going to suddenly be okay, be great, whatever. It's not going to be the spring 2020 that anyone had imagined. It's not going to suddenly get great and memorable for great reasons with, you know, um, fantastic memories. But on the other end, you know, there's so much of interest and small joys that I think we've all considered, you know, there's been small joys. And I think those are ones that you wouldn't have if we were in our normal lives. Uh, you know, something as simple as 
I've become so grateful for hearing my friends' voices in a way that I don't think I was before all of this. You know, we we're all on this Discord server where you can like hear everybody speaking as if it's a phone call, but you can pop in and out like a chat room. And you know, there's something you hear the little doo that someone else has come on, and you hear somebody's voice that like maybe you haven't seen in a while, and. There, there's something about that that's so great or you know even you you Ben like we we speak on the phone you know there was a week where we were speaking on the phone every night about a story and it was ridiculous and it was like 10 p.m and we were both delirious but it was like something great it reminded me of being in the newsroom screaming about some nonsense and it's something that's memorable and something that that's, that's great to have um you know, having conversations about like, remember when blah, blah, blah. And you have these like vivid images of people that mean so much to you. And I think that, and I've said this before, I think the great thing about what's happening right now and what will happen when we're all together again, of course, you know, some people will have graduated is that I think that there's going to be such a strong sense of community and love and appreciation and gratitude um, for the community that we have at the college, I think that'll be, you know, worldwide is something we'll see that people are so thankful for what they have and for the people that they have, because right now the thing that people are missing so much is people and human contact. Um, and so right now, well, I think people are kind of, you know, for survival's sake, you know, being a little bit selfish and being a little bit apathetic and being a little introverted. I think that that's leading towards something great. Um, I think that we're going to see an influx of, honestly, I think that we're going to see an influx of like activism and um, uh, appreciation for each other and fighting for each other. Um, that when this comes down, I think that humanity will be better for it. And maybe that's, you know, uh, a lot of hopeful thinking, but I, I have faith in um, people, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, I think there is, there's no virtue in defeatism. Uh, and I think that there is some virtue in hope, even when it seems a little irrational, which is not to say that what you just said sounds irrational, but um, I, I, th I think a lot of that I agree with. Um, I will say, to start with the negatives, as I'm wont to do, um, that... You cut off, Ben. <laughs> no, I, I will say, to start with the negatives, as I often do, that, that um, I do think there has been, there have been, not, not, not even, not for me necessarily, but in pe from people I've talked to, I think there have been some moments of profound emptiness, if not loneliness, in the experience that we've been having here. That it seems rather hollow, um, perhaps rather pointless. Um, and, and I think that those feelings have been particularly acute, um, maybe for members of the senior class, which, as mm -hmm. I think about it, are the people that I've most frequently expressed that to me. Uh, and so in that context, we didn't keep the momentum and the excitement, not excitement, but the momentum that we had 
in the middle of March when all this was coming down the pike for the most part. It probably wasn't reasonable to expect that we would, uh, but we certainly did. Uh, and, and as I wrote three weeks ago in a, in a piece that I believe the title of which was something like Searching for Meaning Amid Monotony, I think that kind of sums up the experience that at least I have had and that I know that some folks that I keep in fairly close contact with have had. And so I don't know that we met the aspiration that we would avoid apathy entirely. And I, I, I would can say that I have detected some of that. And I don't, I don't fault people for being disinterested or less excited about what we've been doing. And that's certainly no knock on the college or particularly professors who have moved heaven and earth to have their classes online in a couple of weeks and some of whom are not really computer people to begin with suddenly teaching online classes. But, you know, I think that I don't know that we met. The other passage from that piece was in a section about how this is exactly what the liberal arts are preparing us for. Certainly that's true. That doesn't mean we have to like it. Uh, and the part of it that stuck with me earlier um, is that there's a line in there about how times of disruption can be opportunities for innovation, which sounds a little bit like a Gettysburg College website piece. But uh, <laughs> I don't know that we've seen much innovation in the last six weeks that we're going to want to replicate. I think, if anything, what we've seen is that normal, such as we once knew it, is what we want. We may appreciate that more if, I will say if and when it returns, but if it returns. And if it doesn't, we're going to have to think more seriously about how and why Gettysburg retains its identity as a college. And to put the cards on the table that I'm sure the Board of Trustees is thinking about and that President's Council and the President are thinking about, that is financially viable because mm -hmm. already we were anticipating a demographic cliff in five years, uh, which, which was associated with declining birth rates in the mid to late 2000s during that recession. Compound that with the financial holes associated with not being able to utilize the residential capacity of a residential liberal arts college and compound that with what will almost surely be, if not a smaller incoming class, an incoming class that requires much more financial aid than, than perhaps was budgeted, not to mention current students whose family financial situations are not what they were two months ago. And all of that adds up to 
a pretty a pretty scary time for for Gettysburg College and certainly the president is is projecting optimism and is projecting resoluteness as as we and resolve i suppose is the noun form of resolute you don't need to put a ness on there there's a grammatical pet peeve of mine that i just committed that's an aside but anyway <laughs> certainly the president is projecting resolve as he should and as i hope is warranted but Already, there were projections that in the next 10 years, 100 of the one, there are about 1,000 liberal arts colleges in the United States, apparently, and there were already projections that 100 of them were going to close in the next five years. Uh, now those projections are showing that 200 are likely to close in the next two to three years, according to some, some people who track these things. I don't think there's any serious concern that Gettysburg is going to imminently collapse at least if there is, it's not concern that I've heard of or that the financial picture of the college as of today seems to warrant. I do think, though, that it is a serious question as to whether we will in any at any time in the near future, and by near future, I'll say 18 months, are able to return to what Gettysburg College was like as recently as February of this year. And anyone who is willing to say yes categorically is, if nothing else, more optimistic than I would be about that. Because I just don't know that we can know. And the model that we ran on this semester worked for what its intention was, but it's no way to run a residential liberal arts college. And, and everyone knows that the questions become, what is a way to run a residential liberal arts college if the old way ceases to be tenable? And is that a value commensurate to what it costs for students. And uh, again, I just don't know that we know. Yeah. So on that happy uh, note. Yeah. I was going to pivot a little bit. Um, pivot away. Today is the, uh, today is the, um, we're recording the last podcast that uh, Ben will be the host of. Uh, ben will be our guest, one of our two guests ne uh, next week, but um, along with Anna Sincata, who's going to be the next editor-in-chief to get its version, my, the next co-host will be Mary Frazier, who uh, was Ben's co-host in my absence. Uh, but Ben, you've been a part of this podcast since the beginning. Uh, you know, you went to... Um, a thing at the New York Times. They talked about podcasts and you said to make one with Jamie Welch, who was editor-in-chief at the time. Um, and here we are about three, three years later. Um, you know, you're, we'll talk obviously a little bit more about you, your tenure as editor-in-chief in next week's interview. But I guess just for right now, how how are you feeling about this like journey of like doing a podcast like every week or every other week for three years? 
Well, um, that is true. So three years ago, uh, actually it was the spring of my freshman year, um, Jamie and I attended the New York Times student editor workshop uh, up in up at the New York Times in New York. And we came and one of the sessions did have to do with podcasting. And on the train ride back, I drew up a little map of what a podcast might look like and pitched it to Jamie. And it turns out he had been thinking along similar lines and, uh, and on target was born. I will say that the name on target was the source of much, uh, contemplation. Uh, we kicked around, I will bet you 50 names before we settled on this one. Um, I'm trying to remember what any of them were offhand. Um, some of them were pretty terrible. <laughs> um, hmm. You know, I don't think we should. I'm surprised we didn't go down this road, but like they were on the level of Gettysburg gabs, those sorts of like, I don't think that was actually one of them, but that was like the level of name that we started with. So. I'm very pleased we got to the very refined on target. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I mean, I think a few things are true. Um, it's a different format and, and it has allowed what I hope is a, an illuminating and perhaps an incisive conversation about, about the news rather than explicitly just reporting the news. That, of course, creates some challenges in its own right um, as far as uh, not a object objectivity might well be a myth. I don't know. But it's created some challenges as far as, as um, making sure that we're presenting not all sides really, but the, the conversations on which we have opinions don't spiral into a place that's just ranting. Um, and I'll confess that once or twice I went there. Um, only once or twice, o only yeah. ever once or twice. But I think that the goal has been to cut through, as Joe Biden would say, the malarkey, uh, as as others might say the bullshit mm. um and just chat about what's going on at, on this campus and that we've been able to broadcast this on on WZBT to the local listening audience uh, on the radio and i i don't know and i think that the interviews that we've been able to do have been illuminating in their own right insofar as it's not often the case that you sit down with someone for a half an hour and then broadcast the whole interview, you know, and a get his virgin story, you'd condense a half hour interview into, I don't know, two or three quotes. Uh, so it's, it's provided some opportunities to learn more about how senior administrators are thinking. And I think you'll see that in the interview coming up with Trace Mullis. Uh, I think over the years, we've seen that with, with Dean Ramsey, um, who has come on, a couple of times to talk about issues like student retention. Um, 
and and during the mold saga, we were able to get Dean Ramsey and Dan Constellate, the head of finance and administration here. Um, and so, you know, I think that that the podcast has been. I mean, I'm not going to lie. At times, it's been a pain uh, to put together. I'm not an audio editor, although I'm glad to have learned some basic skills. Uh, and and you know, it it is not an insignificant time commitment, but I think that it may be worth it, based on feedback that we've received over these three years, um, to 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 have this this different kind of format talk about the news i know of a couple people that would consider themselves big on target fans yes will esposito i'm talking about you um and i, I thank thanks for thanks for listening um but yeah it's been a it's been a good ride i certainly have enjoyed the bullet reports it's been a sad part of my senior spring not to be able to to plow through telling you that the baseball team lost and that the softball team probably won and the women's lacrosse team and the men's lacrosse team almost certainly won. And, and, uh, I'm sure I'm missing some spring sports track probably, uh, fared somewhere in the middle of their multiple meets, uh, multiple school meets and, uh, okay. Thus endeth the bullet report, but you know, I think that's been, that's been, uh, fun i suppose and doing it remotely has been a unique experience and gary as you mentioned earlier i think we've all come to appreciate touch points uh that that were part of our lives on campus being able to be replicated in a in an authentic way off campus and i'm hopeful that over the past few weeks we've been able to uh to replicate the banter that that we've so enjoyed on campus here on target on tour. Yeah. So there's a lengthy yeah. answer to your question. Yeah, I think that um that's it's definitely been one of the points of normalcy for me. Uh you know, uh, a week or every week, you know, doing one to two hours with Ben Ponce on target. Uh was a really normal part of my uh life at school um you know in the wzbt studio ben has um all of his keys on a lanyard which is interesting because you don't see many seniors that still walk around with the lanyard but uh guy big lanyard guy and um ben and i would always meet in the gettysburg office which is down the hall from the wzbt booth and we would chat for a bit about something else because we usually record on Friday. So weeks happen and then Ben will start throwing around his lanyard with such force and walk down the hallway. And he has like way too many keys because he's Ben Ponce. And like, what else do you expect? Obviously, this dude has too many keys. And he just throws his lanyard around um, pretty violently. Uh, usually at some point or another, someone else is recording in the studio and Ben is furious about it. So we have to go to the back. And it was just like a really fun, you know, thing that I would have to put up with once or twice a week. So instead of having to see Ben crib about someone being in his booth and having him chuck lanyards everywhere, I get to deal with him not realizing how to, you know, stream on Facebook whenever he chooses to stream. <laughs> um, 
And uh, I'm sure he appreciates that my hair doesn't hit the microphone every time we record. Uh, yeah, Gary. Well, one day, very soon, slash this episode uh, will be edited by uh, you. And if you ever return to campus and, uh, <laughs> you know, you experience just the repeated thudding of someone's hair hitting the microphone, you'll, uh, you'll, you'll feel my pain. <laughs> But I think, um, you know, uh, I had made jokes about taking over the podcast when Jamie was graduating. And then Ben texted me after Jamie graduated saying, do you want to take over the podcast with me? You don't have to if you don't want to, which is, I think, the only time that Ben Potts has ever offered me a choice. Um, but I thought it'd be fun. And it turned out to be one of yeah, definitely one of the touchstones of my time at Gettysburg so far. Um, I am excited to continue on with Mary Fraser, but uh, I think I can speak for all on Target fans, um, as well as just people in WZBT and the Gettysburg, and that we will miss you dearly, Ben. Well, I'll miss I'll miss you all as well, of course. Um, yeah, you know, I've been trying to to put off those. Uh, thoughts for a little while longer but the days keep drawing nearer two weeks from tomorrow will be my last official day as editor of the Gettysburgian and you know you've already uh, been named the new news director of WZBT so so there's that so before we uh end end with Gari crying uh, 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 we, we better wrap up this news segment we'll be right back with well uh, I've said this for several weeks now, but it's still true. There is no bullet report, uh, but we will have an interview with Trace Mullis. We are pleased to be joined today by Gettysburg's new uh, vice president, new-ish, I guess, vice president of development, alumni, and parent relations, Trace Mullis. Mr. Mullis, thanks so much for joining us. Absolutely, Ben. Good to be with you. So we're, we're now at the end of April. By the time this uh, goes up anywhere, it will be May. And, and you started, I guess, back in, back in February. And I remember, you know, we had plans that before before we entered the era in which we currently are to, to reach out sooner than we ended up doing. But uh, right. now, now that you have maybe, you know, two whole months of perspective, uh, you know, talk a little bit first about how you how you came to Gettysburg. As I, I, you know, I know that you had some maybe family ties to the college and uh, mm -hmm. and, and then, you know, you were previously at, at Washington and Lee. So what what made you make the make the trip north? Sure. Well, Ben, first of all, I, I started on February 24th. So I had a, I had a few weeks um, on campus before everything became consumed uh, by Corona and, and uh, we went to remote learning and, and then uh, uh, remote working. But uh, to, to answer your question, um, I have, uh, first of all, spent my entire career in higher education fundraising. I started at my alma mater, um, uh, after grad school there um, at Stetson University, undergrad and grad school, and then started in their, the annual giving office there, um, and then worked my way uh, to uh, Vanderbilt University for seven years, and then to Washington and Lee um, for 14 years. And uh, I, I 
first became associated with Gettysburg probably six, seven years ago when I did some um, consulting uh, work uh, around uh, parent fundraising. Um, got to know Allison Singley and, and Susan Pyron, who you, you might have heard her name. Uh, she's an alumna and um, was, uh, was uh, on the Dapper staff for, for many years. And um, really, uh, you know, came to, to see through that work what a great place Gettysburg is and, and a great community and um, uh, really good uh, uh, people here and, and committed alums and, and parents. Um, and so when the opportunity presented itself uh, through the, the search firm that, that the college had engaged, um, it was actually the first time I had ever responded uh, to, to that kind of outreach in my 14 years at, at Washington and Lee. And as I, as I told uh, the search committee, it was precisely because I you know, had had that previous knowledge and, and experience, as well as the fact that I had, uh, by that point, was seeing it through my son's eyes, who is a member of the class of 2023. Um, and, uh, so, so if I was ever going to consider leaving Washington Lee, which I, I did not really have any thought at that point of doing, um, I had a, a absolutely great, uh, uh, career there, uh, with, with amazing colleagues and, and, and alumni, uh, and parents. Um, but if I was going to consider leaving there, it would have to be, uh, for a place like Gettysburg that, that you know, had a, a similar community, sense of community and um, sense of mission and, and uh, all, the, all the right um, uh, ingredients that, that I appreciate. So um, that's how I got here. On a scale of one to 10, how happy was your son, a, a first year student, that his <laughs> father was going to be moving to, uh, you, you mentioned just before we started recording, you're living right adjacent to campus. <laughs> right. Well, fair, fair question. Um, I, I did, in fact, ask him. Uh, what he would think before I ever became involved in the in the search process, um, and uh, he, uh, I think he said, "Well, that that, that might be interesting." Um, and and then he actually, you know, was I think uh, became, um, I'll I'll say maybe at least he faked it. Uh, well, uh, became excited um, yeah. as as I moved through the the process and. <laughs> um was was very supportive and and so um you know we're 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 enjoying being here uh together now at that time of course he didn't know that that i might be living like <laughs> yeah. you said uh just about on campus but um yeah. nonetheless uh he he seems to to be okay with it well so so as you mentioned you you arrived in late february just maybe two or three weeks before uh covid19 struck uh, and then pretty soon after that, uh, there was a pretty successful uh, kind of emergency push to raise money in the student emergency fund. Talk a little bit about how that might have, I'm imagining, was perhaps some of your first outreach in this, uh, in this new role. Sure. Um, well, that did come about very quickly. Um, I, I, I think that uh, the team... Um, uh, the number of folks that were that were very involved in that um, came together very quickly and and put together um, an effective um, crowdfunding campaign for the student emergency fund, and uh, we we set a goal an initial goal of, of 
$75,000 and the, uh, the fund is, is now at $95,000 from over uh, 600 donors. Um, actually could be closer to 650 now. Um, and about 25% of those are donors who had uh, never made a gift before to the college. So that's always a good thing uh, when, you can, when you can engage uh, people who have not previously given. Um, and, and so the success of, of that effort, you know, really informed um, uh, the focus for, for the Gettysburg Fund uh, for, for this, the, the remainder of the year. Um, and what I mean by that is, is the commitment uh, by the college that, that Gettysburg Fund uh, gifts would support um, those needs directly tied to uh, corona and the impact, financial impact of corona on uh, students as well as, as uh, the campus. Um, and, and so people have, have responded well. Uh, to that, but yeah, we were we were really excited about um, the success of the Gettysburg Fund, or excuse me, the the Student Emergency Fund, and you know the the immediate impact that it had um, on on students, which which again is what I think really resonated with alumni and parents. Right, and and you know I'm imagining that in a time like this, it, there's there's a line between you know wanting having having your hand out for money, so to say, to, you know, given the, the challenges that all kinds of people are facing with respect to their financial circumstances and, you know, may not have the type of, uh, you know, income that they normally might be able to contribute to, to a college. How are you kind of navigating those, what I imagine could be challenging waters? Well, you're, you're, you're certainly, um, you're certainly correct in, in that um, it is a, it is a fine line. Um, you know what I've learned, though, through through many years um, in in fundraising and and um, you know living through the and working through the the recession, which of course you know pales um, in comparison to to what we're experiencing now. Um, but what I've learned is is a couple of things. First of all, um, people want to to whatever extent they can want to continue to support the organizations that they care about um, and, and along with, with um, usually their, um, you know, their, their churches or, or faith-based um, organizations, um, colleges and universities are, are right up there in terms of, of uh, the places that, that they want to support. Um, and also, you, you can't assume that everyone is, is impacted in the same way. Um, and, uh, so, so all you can do or, and what I believe you should do is, um, you know, make the case for support, um, at a critical time, um, being sensitive, uh, you know, to, to, um, to the current circumstances, um, but making a case for, for support and, um, you know, clearly it, it resonated and I'll tell you that that um, you know that has that has um, that has continued with our Gettysburg Fund uh, fundraising, which we pivoted back to uh, soon after the um, you know the the Student Emergency Fund uh, had reached its goal. 
Um, we, we pivoted back our, our focus on the Gettysburg Fund and, and the, the priorities uh, that, I, that I mentioned uh, for support for it. And uh, people have, have been responding um, and we're actually ahead of in, in gifts and pledges um, where we were this time last year um, and on a, on a good trajectory um, to, uh, to reach the, the Gettysburg Fund goal. So I think people are understanding that that unrestricted support uh, for the college is is more critical than ever. And again, they you know they want to support um, a place that they love. Mm-hmm. You know, we keep hearing in in campus wide communications and and things this number of seven million dollars of a gap that that has been uh, in the budget, largely due to the need to refund partial room and board, and, and, but that that's kind of unaccounted for elsewhere. And the college um, received or will soon receive some uh, limited federal support. But I'm imagining that, you know, there's a, there's a push on, on the development office to, to try and help fill other parts of that gap. Talk a little bit about that, if you could. Well, um, yes, and, and that gap is, is, you know, likely going to grow, of course. Um, uh, you know, through through other impacts. Um, you know, right now, in addition to to the Gettysburg Fund uh, and reaching reaching that goal, which, uh, as you may know, the the goal for this year is four point one six million. Um, in addition, we we have been uh, focusing, uh, or really, I should say, beginning to focus on um, fundraising for the. Uh, uh, Eisenhower Institute executive director uh, position um, as an endowed position, and then uh, also for the business and organizational uh, management uh, major in, in support of, of endowment and, and programs um, for, for the major. Um, and, and that really, for going forward for next year, um, along with the Gettysburg Fund, um, is likely to be the focus of our, uh, or the, you know, the, of our, of our um, efforts. Um, we have not yet gotten to this point, but I, I, I would not be surprised if, if in the coming weeks and months, um, you know, we, we might shift a little bit uh, to, to an, an effort around um, financial aid. Um, because obviously the, the need, increased need is going to be significant there. Um, and, and so, you know, there, there could be some special focus there, but um, we, we've, not, uh, we, we've not gotten um, or not, not really gotten into those discussions yet. But um, at the very least, we, we, we'll, we'll certainly be focused on those other two priorities that I mentioned. Right. You know, in in normal times, there's always kind of a conversation, at least, I don't want to necessarily say tension between, but conversation around how, when you're raising money, you balance immediate impact with kind of the long-term, you know, potential growth in in more of an endowed sort of donation situation. How, How at all, how if at all, has that calculus changed in a situation right now where there are acute financial needs, but at the same time, you know, we're, we're aware that the college's endowment is, is tied to the same market forces that, you know, everyone else's portfolios aren't doing so hot either. So how do you kind of balance the need for short-term cash versus not wanting to, you know, mortgage the future that is why you have an endowment in the first place? 
Right. Well, great, great question. Um, you know, we we have um, I mentioned that the, those two priorities of, of the EI executive director position and, and the business major. Um, we've we've I don't want to say we've put those put those on hold, but one of the reasons that that um, you know we've we've not um, we've not moved further than we have at this point um, on those two priorities is is uh, absolutely the need to focus on the Gettysburg Fund. Um, you know, in follow up uh, to to the focus on the student emergency fund uh, last month. Um, and, you know, the need for those unrestricted dollars of the Gettysburg Fund, as I said, are more critical than ever. Um, you know, four point one million dollars um, equates to about uh, more more than 80 million dollars um, uh, would be required in additional endowment to uh, generate the equivalent um, of that $4.1 million. So when you put it in that perspective, um, you know, it, you, you, you come to see um, how important those, those dollars can be, um, you know, because it's hard to raise $80 million in endowment. And uh, there's really no such thing as unrestricted endowment. It's, it's, that's sort of an oxymoron because, you know, most endowments are um, uh, donor uh, directed. Uh, for a, a specific purpose. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we, we certainly need to do everything we can to, to raise those unrestricted dollars. But to your point, um, we, we have to continue uh, to, to keep focus on um, the need for endowment uh, because long-term that's, that's gonna, you know, that's what's going to really sustain the college um, in, in the years ahead. Um, and, you know, I think most people, um, appreciate the impact of, of endowment. Um, and, uh, you know, the idea of, of helping the college in per perpetuity, um, and, you know, supporting, for example, supporting students, um, in, in, you know, generations to, to come, uh, through, through a scholarship. Yeah. And, and this, kind of as a similar question, maybe just a little bit more, more philosophical, but, you know, some people have suggested that now is a time when well-endowed colleges, and I know there's, you know, this, uh, that the Gettysburg is maybe not as well-endowed as some of our peer institutions, but certainly relative to uh, many higher education institutions, Gettysburg is fairly well-endowed, but that now is a time that institutions with you know, hundred million dollar endowments. You know, if if there were ever a time to start uh, use tapping into that money, it's for a global pandemic that nobody could have foreseen. You know, how do you kind of view and and you mentioned that unrestricted endowment isn't really so much of a thing, but how do you kind of make the case that you know we still need to have our eyes on a on a long term situation when there's this very pressing and acute short term maybe not so short term, depending on how we play it, thing right in front of us. Right, right. Well, you know, first of all, Ben, um, you know, what, what is sometimes lost in those conversations is, um, and, and, and it goes all the way, um, you see it at the federal level when, when Congress is trying to get involved in, in um, you know, the uh, college's endowments and how they use them. Um, you know, as I, as I said, um, endowments 
um, are are largely, almost almost entirely, usually uh, restricted uh, by the donor for a specific purpose. So when people, you know, sometimes say, "Why isn't the college uh, using its endowment uh, to do X, Y, Z?" Um, well, you you use your endowment for the purposes that the that the donor uh, directed and that you committed to um, in in perpetuity, um, and along with that, um, most uh, Gettysburg, like most um, responsible colleges, um, you know, by board policy, uh, does not exceed uh, using more than five percent of the earnings. Uh, because to do otherwise it, it erodes that the, the principle, and there's there's nothing left for the future. And, and um, you know you you need to balance um, using using uh, the endowment uh, to support current students, but also preserving it for for the future. So if you start um, you know using six seven percent or more, as as people will sometimes suggest, um, you know there's not going to be uh, uh, principle uh, and, and, you know, very little growth, of course, um, in the years ahead. Um, you know, that said, uh, certainly there is, as, as you mentioned, this, this tension um, between, between current needs um, and, and the long term. Um, and I think we just have to, to uh, make a compelling case really for both. Um, and, and that's why, um, you know, I'm a big believer in unrestricted annual funds. Um, I, I was at Washington Lee and, and led the development office during a tremendous period of growth uh, in its unrestricted annual fund. And so I've seen the impact uh, that that can make on a school. Um, but then also endowment, um, you know, really um, uh, there's only there's only one or there's there's two ways really to support uh, the needs of, of a college. Um, and that's through endowment or, or uh, tuition. And we know we can't, um, you know, keep raising tuition. Uh, you, can, you can only do that so, so much. So you have to build endowment uh, to take pressure off of, of uh, tuition increases. Right. You know, one of the kind of landmarks maybe in Gettysburg College's recent history of, of philanthropic support has been you know, an unrestricted, I believe it was a two and a half million dollar gift by John Jager, who, who passed away earlier this year, to an unrestricted endowment. Or as you think about the types of priorities that you have when you when you're in conversations with those larger potential larger dollar donors, is kind of unrestricted endowment something that you're thinking about, or is the focus right now more on these things like uh, the 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 Eisenhower Institute and, and the business organization management major that you mentioned. Yeah, it's it's really more the latter, Ben, along with um, uh, scholarship endowments, so financial aid. Um, you know, certainly sometimes there are donors who who will um, who will say that they uh, want to make a, an um, an unrestricted endowment gift. That's fairly unusual. Um, and you know, uh, having endowment for the, the purposes that that you just mentioned, and, and again, particularly financial aid, um, you know that those those hit on the highest priorities for for the college, and and are the things that that um, 
you know, where there's, there's the greatest need and, and are, are going to, to have a, a major impact. Um, you know, often where you see unrestricted endowment and the way that you can build unrestricted endowment uh, is through um, undesignated bequests. Uh, so, so, you know, individuals who um, have named the college in, in their state plans, but not for a specific purpose. And, and um, you know, those are really nice gifts for, uh, for unrestricted endowment or, or, you know, for the highest uh, priorities of the college at, at that particular time. Right. Um, you know, we, we're talking about um, these, these larger gifts. Um, one, one item that I think everyone is kind of anticipating being on the horizon at some point in the not too distant future is another kind of coordinated capital campaign. Talk if you could about kind of how, what, what benchmarks are in place. And I know that those often lead off with, uh, you know, a leadership phase of a campaign before it's Mm -hmm. rolled out to the, to the general public, but what might a timeline for something like that look like? Well, um, then it won't surprise you to, to know that the timeline is probably going to be adjusted now uh, from from what it what it might have been. Um, but um, uh, the starting point for for any successful uh, capital campaign, comprehensive capital campaign, is a uh, well thought out uh, strategic plan. Um, a, a strategic plan is what should drive a capital campaign, uh, and the reverse is not true. A capital campaign uh, is not the same as a strategic plan and, and does not uh, drive the, mm-hmm. um, the, the strategic plan. Um, and the strategic plan has to come from the academic side of the, the college um, and, and articulate um, the highest uh, priorities um, for for the college, um, and and um, what then happens? Uh, you you basically price, if you will, uh, all of the priorities that are identified uh, through the strategic planning process. And a good strategic planning process, to to get closer to your question, um, usually takes about a year. Um, if, if it's, if it's, you know, uh, done thoughtfully, uh, as, as we know, it will be here, um, involving, involving all the constituents of, of the campus, uh, in the way that it, it should. Um, and once that process, um, has, has concluded, um, you, you price the, the priorities and you identify those that can be funded through philanthropy. Um, and those that can be funded through um, some other revenue source. Uh, so, for example, if if um, if you identified that that you needed to build a residence hall, that's not a good candidate for philanthropic support. Um, it is a good candidate for for um, you know bond uh, 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 funding, for example, because there's a revenue stream. Um, so so. Not all of the priorities of a strategic plan will be funded through the capital campaign, but but really only those um, that are most compelling to to alumni and, and parents. Um, and so once you've gone through that process uh, and identified the, the needs that, that should be um, uh, supported through uh, philanthropy through a campaign, 
Um, you then begin uh, testing and, and researching the capacity of your, your alumni and, and parents and, and other constituents, donor constituents, um, and, and to get to a point where those two come together. Uh, because while you, you might identify, for example, you might, you might find that you have $300 million um, in, in strategic plan priorities that, that you would like to have supported by a capital campaign, you might find that your capacity of, of your donor base um, really uh, informs that, that maybe 200, 250 million. Um, and so you, you then have to start making uh, decisions. Um, and, and so then, as you, as you said, once you, once you identify uh, the, the capacity, um, you start testing that, that goal um, and, and start working on uh, a leadership phase. Um, and for a capital campaign uh, to be most successful, uh, you really don't want to do a public launch um, until 40 to 50 percent um, of, of the goal has been, has been raised in a, in a leadership phase. And usually that leadership phase is a year to 18 months. Um, before before you launch publicly and announce the final public goal for the campaign. So in in our context, then, given that the college's current strategic plan, I, I believe, runs through this year, we'd be looking at at least probably another year to develop a new strategic plan before before uh, a, a, you know we'd be in another campaign season. That's right, and and that's and that's really one of the um, one of the main uh, responsibilities of Chris Stempley in her new role um, in the president's office. She will she will lead that uh, process, um, uh, obviously with uh, President Giuliano um, uh, being being very involved. But she will lead the day to day strategic planning process for the for the the campus community and. Um, uh, you know, the, I think the the, the plan um, was uh, that that would start this summer, um, and and certainly I think I think Chris and President Giuliano still uh, hope that we can we can begin, um, you know, at, at least the the the, the early uh, parts of the of the process, but uh, might be a little might be a little delayed uh, beyond beyond uh, what would have been originally uh, hoped for. Well, perhaps the most important question in all of this is we've had the Gettysburg Great campaign. The uh, the last strategic plan was called the Unfinished Work. So I think don't ask me to predict a name. We're running out of Gettysburg little uh, you know uh, gimmicky names to, to to come up with for our next campaign. So you know how 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 many people in your office are currently brainstorming ideas for for the name of the next campaign? <laughs> well, we haven't we haven't started brainstorming yet. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if you know people have jotted down um, ideas, ideas uh, as they come to them. Um, but yeah, that's always, it's always an interesting, uh, question, yeah. um, because, you know, while, while you could make a case, I think that, that the name is not going to make or break the campaign, um, you know, you certainly want it to, to be meaningful and, and resonate with people. Right. Um, so you do have to, to be thoughtful about, um, uh, the, the campaign name. 
Yeah. And then the last kind of area or, or topic, I guess, you know, as you mentioned earlier, um, there, there are really two revenue sources for a college. There's tuition and then there's giving broadly construed, whether mm-hmm. that's right. uh, you know, direct philanthropic support or foundations or whatever. Um, Gettysburg uh, has, has, is uh, pretty tuition dependent, I think, uh, relative to at least maybe some of our more aspirant uh, peer institutions. Mm-hmm. How, do you, how do you kind of chart a course that leads away from that? What is that? What is a long-term, uh, you know, it, it, assuming that it is a long-term strategy, and maybe it's not, to become less tuition dependent? How do you kind of expand the donor capacity that you think you have now to to get to a place like that? I know that's that's the big question, obviously. Yeah. But how do you well, kind of just early thoughts about that? You know, Ben, um, I think that you just have to keep well, you have to 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 um, make a compelling case for that support, and you have to keep telling the story, and you have to raise the sights um, both uh, both internally um, of of uh, campus um, uh, uh, community members, uh, as well as um, the, those of your alumni and, and parents. Um, and people generally respond to increased and ambitious expectations uh, for a purpose that 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 is compelling and that and that they believe in. Um, and you know, I, I think um, perhaps through the years, um, Gettysburg has been maybe too modest um, in 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 its in its approach. Um, and uh, um, you know, so so we need to to be um, well. L- let me say it this way: we we need to be proud um, in in and bold in in our requests um, of of alumni and parents because um, you know it's it it is a compelling there is a compelling case to be to be made um, in in support of of you know students. Um, uh, to to come to Gettysburg um, and benefit from a great education, right? And and certainly, I imagine as you tell that story to potential donors, it it might some of the the details that you choose to highlight might might vary based on what you know about the person in terms of what might resonate with them. But what are kind Absolutely. of in your eyes the broad uh, you know themes in the story that that you're telling donors today? Uh, or, or in general about about Gettysburg College and why why one ought to want to support it. You know, I think um, it, first of all, if it's if it's alumni, you can always connect it to their experience um, and and um, making the case for them to help make that experience that they benefited from um, and and that has benefited them. Um, and, and, you know, I, I think most every alum that you, you would talk with, um, would have some version, um, of, of this sentiment or express some version of this sentiment, um, of the benefits, lifelong benefits of their Gettysburg education. Um, and so to, to, uh, make that connection, uh, 
for them to to support that opportunity um, for deserving students, uh, whether whether they can afford it or not, regardless of their of their um, family financial circumstances, um, to make that opportunity available to those students um, who are then going to to um, you know leave Gettysburg um, with this with this great liberal arts education and um, you know contribute to to the greater good um, in in whatever ways uh, whatever form that might take in in their chosen um, career and you know the benefits that that has um, for obviously for that individual those individual students but for society um, you know I think um, is again is a compelling um, uh, case and, and message. Well, I, I think we're going to go ahead and leave it there. Thanks, thanks so much for for joining us. Well, thank you for uh, for having me, Ben. That's on target for this week. We'd like to thank Trace Mullis for being our featured guest today. We'd also like to thank the staff of the Guinness Version and the executive board of WZBT for their ongoing support in this project. Please be sure to subscribe to On Target on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Well, on Target is a joint production of the Guinness Version and WZBT. Our theme music was composed by Diego Rocha, 2019 graduate of the Sunderman Conservatory of Music. Join us next week, and when I say us, I really mean Gary and Mary Fraser. But I'll be there as the guest. Uh... Take it or leave it, I suppose. We'll see you then. Have a great week.